0: Amen. Good morning. Welcome, welcome. Hey, grab your Bibles. We started last week in the book of Revelation. And if you're uh, ready to be blessed in two different ways, you can open and follow along. That's the minimum. You'll be blessed three times over if you take what is in here today and you put it into practice. Because if we remember back to verse 3 where we ended... This is how it reads here. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. So if you read at home, you may not have seen it yet, but God's good at his word here. And those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. And here's why. For the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins. In his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so. Amen. And Father, as we turn our hearts to your word, God, would you bless the study of your word, Lord, would you speak to us? Lord, would we just get a fresh picture of Jesus today? That we might be able to, in even a greater way, go out and let our light and our shine out in the earth, that we might be salt to a world that desperately needs a preserving influence from you, Jesus. So Lord, bless our time here this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, welcome to one of the most mysterious, controversial, and neglected books in the Bible. To the few people who actually do open its pages, too many approach this study really as an intellectual level or from an intellectual position. And if you've read ahead, it'd be easy to see why they would take that approach. Certainly there's a lot of facts and figures and things in here that need to be discovered. But here's how you and I need to approach it. We need to to approach it as worshipers of Jesus Christ, and we need to allow him to reveal himself to us on every single page. Just like when you're home reading through it. Your heart should be, Lord, reveal yourself to me. Because in the midst of the chapters and the verse numbers is Jesus Christ waiting to be discovered And revealed in your heart. That's why we saw last week in verse 1, the very first words, the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. That's why the devil works overtime keeping people out of it. He doesn't want people to see Jesus in the book. But that was last week. This morning we start in verse 4 where we find out who the author is. Remember last week, God said to Jesus and Jesus sent his angel to the servant John. And now John is going to write as he hears from Jesus, and he writes to the seven churches which are in Asia. So John tells us very early on exactly who he's writing to. And he tells us that he's writing to seven real-life churches that you and I would know today are in modern-day Turkey. Back then, they called it Asia Minor. Now, what we do know is that there are more than seven churches in this area. There are bigger churches more influential churches than these. But for some reason, Jesus saw fit. For some reason, Jesus has a purpose for just these seven. And as we read about these in chapters 2 and 3, we will realize that these churches here, well, they make up the complete church. And God wants to speak to us through this. Now, as we get into the chapter two and three, it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is speaking today. So look at your neighbor and look at at your neighbor and look and see if they have ears. And if they do, tell them the Spirit wants to speak to them today. He does. He does. Now, keep in mind that every word in the Bible is arranged under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Second Peter chapter one tells us that. So with that in mind, please understand that these are not just random words thrown on a page. No, they're, there. They're, de- they're designed to bring about one purpose and one purpose only for us to draw closer to Jesus. And yet in this book, to really understand, and it is an understandable book, what's going on. Remember last week I told you the Greek language doesn't have a numerical system like we have? They use words for numbers, and you and I know that words mean things. And this book, it seems, is built upon the number seven, which means perfect, not in perfection, but perfect in the sense of completeness. The number seven is used 31 times in this book. Always speaking to a complete package. Or as Jesus writes to these seven churches, to the complete church. If you look in the Old Testament, the little Levitical system was built... Around a number of sevens. Noah took seven of every clean animal on the boat. When he got on the boat or the ark, after seven, and the Lord shuts him in after seven days, it rains. The Bible begins with seven days of creation, it ends with a book that's filled with the number seven and speaks about its doom. Seven seems to be a favorite number of God. So keep that in mind that the number seven is the number of perfect completeness because if you look at things I like, go oh, the seven spirits of God wait a second that's weird seven spirits no you got to remember seven means something it's completeness perfect completeness and so it seems that John or Jesus is having John write to these seven churches here because these seven even though they're like I said they're greater these seven seem to make up the church as a whole, and as we go through them, you'll find out why. And Jesus says here to these that He's writing to, "Grace to you and peace from Jesus Christ." So, after the formal introduction in verses one through three, one through three, the first words of John to a church that is presently being persecuted—I mean, they are going through the ringer—is "Grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ." Those are all free gifts, by the way. Spiritual blessings, if you will. And I hope you and I are cashing in on this grace and peace every single day we're awake. And here's why this is so critical. And this, this is why I believe these are the first words that I wrote to these people. Because the Bible was written during a very specific time period to a very group, a certain group of people. And we made the case last week that this was written about 96 A.D. Well, in 70 A.D., the general Titus Vespasian, the Roman general, surrounded Jerusalem and utterly annihilated it. Okay, so Rome's on the rise. Nero's burned Rome and blamed the Christians for it. So intense persecution is breaking out all across the land. Literally all hell is breaking loose on the believers. Brothers and sisters have watched relatives and family members burned at the stake. They've they've watched people be fed to lions. They've seen them be crucified. People just like you and me being destroyed by Rome. See, it's kind of hard for us to grasp here because, you know, we're all nice and comfy here. But when you travel outside of this country and you go to third world countries, you find out, wow, it's pretty tough out there. But that's nothing compared to what these guys were going through. They're being arrested. They're being killed. They're being tortured and tormented. And the first words from Jesus to his complete church are grace and peace. And see, whatever's going on in your life, that's what you need. (laughs) Whatever's going on in my life, grace and peace will always take you through any and every single storm that you face. So whatever's going on, these same words, Jesus wants to speak them to you. He wants to carry you through life's difficulties. See, grace and peace, it always appears in this order as we go through the Scriptures. It's never in reverse order, and we know why. Because in order to know the peace of God, we have to experience the grace of God. And as you experience God's grace, as the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 7-10, through 10, it says, Jesus tells him, my grace for you, Paul, is sufficient for everything. No matter what you go through. See, but you have to look up. See, if you, you're going through stuff and you're looking at life this way, God's trying to say, hey, look up. My grace is sufficient for you. But if you don't look up, you're just continually trying to struggle it and do it in your own strength and your own power. And yet Paul says, says that when I'm weak, I'm strong. But you got to look up. And when you look up, God's grace is right there, and it's more than sufficient, more than sufficient for anything and everything you'll ever face, this unmerited favor of God for you. Whatever it is that you need in that moment, Jesus is more than able to meet that need. But you got to look up, and you got to ask, and you got to receive. And as you do, not only do you receive unmerited favor, but then the peace of Christ comes and settles on your hearts. Or you get something you don't deserve or you are owning God's riches at Christ's expense, and you will experience the peace of God. You see, grace can't be earned. It's a gift from God. We see that in Ephesians chapter 2. And as we walk in his grace towards all others, then the peace of Jesus Christ marks my life, and the light of Christ then gets to shine out so that all those in the world can see you and me. And it's critical. And it's the way God set it up. Because as we travel in God's grace, then people get to see because we're gracious to them, regardless of how they are towards us. So he says, grace to you and peace from him. That's a blessing from the Father, who is and who was and who is to come. That's a name or a title for the Father. And, and, And this phrase is not who is, past tense. You know, God was over there. And now who was, well, God's right here right now. But then Jesus is coming back. That's not what that means. Who is and who was and who is to come speaks of the eternity of God's plan of nature all at the same time. That God is is always in the past, God's always in the present, and God's always in the future all at the same time. That's why the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost can never learn anything new. They're always in the past. They're always in the present And they're always in the future all at the same time. And that encourages me in turbulent times that we live in. Because see, God hasn't forgot about you. Grace and peace to Bruce from him who is, who was, and who is to come. See, no matter where you are, no matter what's going on, these these Christians were being crucified. But when you realize God's always in the past, God's always in the present, God's always in the future, oh, God's... He never learns anything new. All of a sudden, as you look up, wow, God's more than able. This is all present. It's a great reminder to you and I, no matter as we travel through life, no matter what we go through, God's always present. He isn't going, oh, I can't believe that he woke up that way this morning. No, God saw it coming. He did. He knows everything. He knew me before I came to Christ. He knows me after I came to Christ. God even sees me in a glorified body as I enter into heaven, and yet he still chose me. I wouldn't have chose me. (laughs) But then I wouldn't have chose you either, so. I mean, God chose us in spite of all our flaws and failures. And he sees us in heaven. Why? Because he sees everything all at the same time. He's outside of our space and time, and he can see the whole picture. You know, you may have been shocked by your actions, both B.C. and A.D., but God never was. And see, as I get my eyes off of Texas and place them in the heavenlies where they belong, I find grace, and I find peace, and I find refuge. And like I did a couple weeks ago, the only difference between getting your eyes off of Texas and getting them on the Lord is about an inch. It's choice. God wants you to look up. You know, it's interesting to me that this book of Revelation for suffering Christians was given, the the vision and the words and and everything that goes on in these 22 chapters was given to John while he was banished on the island of Patmos for the testimony of Christ. So in a sense, he's in prison there. He's in this place of isolation. And in this place of isolation, Jesus shows up to him in a big way. I think you might want to do that in your life as well. In our life, when it appears that we're on this isolated island, it seems like nobody else is around us. It might be like, man, God has forgot about us. Oh, no, no, no. God hasn't forgot about you. It could be God called you to that place because he wants to teach you great things about himself, just like he does for John here. You know, a friend of ours years back had an extreme mastectomy. And it was definitely an island of Patmos experience. And as I, I was talking with her, she told me prior to being diagnosed with that, she told me she had been praying for, for, for a, a, just a, a more closer, intimate relationship with Jesus. And I'm looking at her, I'm thinking, yeah, you really got that, didn't you? And she's going, she goes, and I, as, I, as I went through that whole surgery and the chemo and everything man, it has brought me so much closer to Jesus, the very thing she was looking for. But I don't think she was looking it was like it was going to happen through that. But that's what God does in our lives. He brings us through things so we can see Him more clearer. I mean, there's a great picture of the Trinity here in verses 4 and 5. Certainly the, the cults today have a huge problem with these two verses. But if you just take a real second-grade basic Level, reading level, and let the living word come to life. It's pretty clear. Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. That's from the Father. And And then a blessing from the seven spirits who are before the throne. We're going to talk about that. Obviously a reference to the Holy Spirit. And a blessing from Jesus Christ, God the Son. You know, a definition for the Trinity is within the nature of one true God, there are three co-eternal and co-equals, the same in substance or essence, but distinct from each other. Now, don't ask me to explain it. (laughs) Other than by pointing you back into the Scriptures in places like this, where where all of a sudden you, you see the fullness of the Godhead here. See, the Trinity is one of those great mysteries of God. If you could fully explain it, you might need a new upgrade here but we can't. Because this is who God is, and he lays it out there for us to believe it, you know? And he doesn't ask me to believe it blindly, but he does ask me to believe it. That within the nature of one true God, the Father, God became man, God the Son, and the Holy Ghost lives in each one of us. As we turn to Jesus, he guides us life. God the Holy Spirit. That's all the more I can really do for you other than encourage you. If you really want to understand it, go looking through your Bible. Read through the Bible cover to cover and look for every place where there's a description of the the characteristics or the nature of the Godhead. And when you put them all together, they are solid because you're going to find them everywhere. There are thousands of verses that will take the Trinity and tie them all together. You know, and it might, this one might only be the, the Father and the Son, and this one might only be the Son and the Holy Spirit. This might be the, the Father and the Holy Spirit. But when you tie them all together, it's solid. It is a solid doctrine. Look at this last phrase here in verse 4. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, if you just go seven spirits, well, that seems kind of weird. Now, remember, numbers mean something. So it's the complete Spirit. And from the complete Spirit who are before His throne. It speaks of the completeness of the Holy Spirit. If you turn backwards to the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2, there's a definition of these seven attributes of the Holy Spirit listed there. I'll, I'll read them to you. And I've, I've broken them up because I put, it says it starts out with the spirit of the Lord, but then I put the spirit of in, in every single one of them. So it's the spirit of the Lord, that's one, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Now, when you put all those together, all seven of those, they're not seven different spirits before the throne of God. No, because it's one. And, and, and you, when you put them all together, you get a complete picture Of the attributes of the third person of the Godhead, and it it probably has in your Bible a little footnote there, Isaiah chapter eleven, verse two, because that you get a good picture here. Now, as we move forward, we get the first of thirty-two names or titles that's given to or assigned to our Jesus in verse five. Look what they are, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. That's one. The firstborn from the dead. That's two and Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth, that's three. So let's ask ourselves, why does Jesus chose these words to introduce himself to these believers in a description of himself? Why does he use these? Well, again, just remember where John is. Remember where the people are. The church is being put to death, literally in fire, thrown out to the wild beasts. Maybe they're going, God, where are you in all of this? And I would think that while these saints were facing death, that being reminded about how Jesus was a faithful witness to his Father under death and how he rose again to conquer over all things would bring great comfort to them. But you've got to step into their shoes. You've got to look at life from 96 AD perspective. But then it's really easy because all we do is look at what's going on in our own lives. So again, verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. All in reference to Jesus Christ. And think of how Jesus was the faithful witness team. When he was reviled, he did not threaten. He lived his entire human life to represent the Father to his creation, and he did it perfectly Philip said to Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 7, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? See, Jesus is a faithful witness of the love of the Father that the Father has for this church, for the church. If you want to know what God's like, Just go look at Jesus. Go read the four four Gospels, and you'll get a, a great picture of what the Father is like. Jesus said in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. He was and is a faithful witness of the Father, amen? He is. Jesus also takes on the title, the firstborn from the dead. Now, he was not only the first to rise from the dead, that's true, but what this means is he's the preeminent one over all creation. He's the supreme ruler over all creation. You know, whatever you do, don't let the cults use this verse and others like it to say, see, I told you Jesus is not God because it says right here he was born. No, that's not what that says. And we covered this not too long ago. So you might want to write these down. You can look them up on your own time. And if you can't connect the dots, hey, come and, come and sit with me and I'll show you. Genesis Forty-one, fifty-one. Plus, they'll be on the internet tonight. Genesis forty-eight, thirteen to nineteen. Jeremiah thirty-one, nine. Psalm eighty-nine, verses twenty-seven and twenty-eight and thirty-seven. Romans one, 7, 1 through seven. First Corinthians fifteen, twenty to twenty-three. Hebrews one, six, and Revelation twenty-two, eight and nine. And then, lastly, Colossians chapter one, verses fifteen to eighteen, especially verse eighteen, because in verse eighteen it says Jesus has the preeminence over all. Creation over everything because he created everything. That's why he has the preeminence over everything. You just go look them up. They're there. It's very clear. You know, nobody can deceive you that, that this is the firstborn of God, that God, Jesus is not God because he was born. It's ridiculous. He was the first eternally resurrected from the dead, and he, and, and he is the preeminent one, and thus he defeated death for us all. He's not a firstborn baby. And lastly, Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now, that's good news to you and I in this crazy world we live in. That's why the Bible says in Romans 13, submit to the governing authorities, because God raises authority up and God takes authority down. I mean, think about how Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth. To these Christians who were watching Rome, put them to death. And then all of a sudden you go, wait a second. This earth isn't my home. Jesus is the ruler. There's there's a reason why all this is happening. And then you get a rest. It's good news here. Jesus is the present presiding ruler today, even in the midst of chaos. And he is allowing the world to have her way and run its course. Because there's a timeline in God's kingdom, in God's economy. And God uses ungodly people to fulfill his purposes. So there's no doubt in my mind that God is governing the hand of Putin. Ezekiel 36, 37, and 38 would tell me that. There's no doubt that God's involved in Iran because he's going to use them to fulfill his purposes. Of course, they're going to get destroyed along the journey, but he's going to use them. It's critical that we understand that. You know, when Jesus comes back to this earth, he's going to make war, and he's going to bring judgment and restore order. And he'll have on his, on his robe and on his thigh the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's awesome. The, the, see this next title that Jesus takes upon himself that he wants the angel to write to the Christians? He says, to him who loved us. Man, we should all know that. that that's why you and I seek to live for him every minute of every day, church, because he loved us. And now understand, this is all past tense. It's important for us to know that. He's past tense loved us. And for the proof of that love, all we have to do is look back to the cross. Or if you need a biblical verse for that, it's Romans chapter five, verse eight. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. We read in 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. And what does that act of love do for us? See what it says right here? He washed us. See, if I was God, I think I would have washed you and then I would have loved you. But that's not what God does. God washed us because he loved us. He loved us first, then he washes us. And not because he had to. He didn't, but it's because he wanted to. God wants to wash us. Because he agape loves us. Please notice what Jesus' act of love on the cross washed away from our lives. What does it say? He loved us, he washed us, and what washes away? Our sins. Maybe you were out mowing your yard yesterday. And when you take a shower, the dirt that is on you is washed away. True or false? It's true. Now, is it possible for you to go home after service today and try and retrieve that dirt that went down your drain? No, totally impossible. It's probably in Galveston Bay. You know, it's probably traveling while you're sleeping. It's kind of working its way down there. True or false, if I tried to retrieve that dirt for you down at the bay after church, you would think I'd lost my mind. True or false? True. True. It would be. Then why can't the church today believe and receive what Jesus did for them on the cross? He washed away all of their sins. As far as the drain is to the bay. Every time we hold that communion cup, it reminds us that Jesus has washed away all of our sin. They've been cast in the depths of the ocean. And so why why do I want to remember my sin? Only the devil wants me to remember it, but not God. Now, how were your sins washed away? By what means? What does it say here, church? In his own blood. Now, I'm not much of a math person here, but you know what? I think Jesus washed away all of our sins by his own blood some 2,000 years ago, give or take a few. So if he's washed our sins away 2,000 years ago, why is there such a fascination today about my past sins by some in the church today? I don't know why. Jesus already washed them all away. Or this teaching of, I need to forgive myself. Of what? Jesus has already forgiven me. So what's left to forgive? I need to receive his forgiveness and move on. And be used by him. Jesus washed it all the way at the cross by his blood 2,000 years ago. And I can guarantee you, he doesn't want me looking for your sins or my sins down at the bay. He wants you and I to be thinking on him. Dwelling on him. He wants you to, st- to set our mind and affections and our heart on things above where he dwells see when the devil or your flesh recalls something from your past and you know you've been forgiven please don't entertain it look up and start worshiping it'll, go, it'll it goes away trust me it works you know you know no I know Jesus forgave me for that just start singing as soon as you start singing Lord I he's gone because the devil hates being in the presence of worshiping drives him crazy just Start to worship. And thank Him for casting your sins as far as the east is from the west. You know, we all know we pick up dirt along the way. So confess those things to God right away. And as you and I confess our sins to God throughout the day, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to drain that poison out of our heart that caused us to do them in the first place. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But don't get wrapped up in them. Get wrapped up in Jesus. Because he's past tense, cleansed you by his blood, all of your sin. When we blow it during the, week, during the day, yeah, confess it to him. But then get right back in the game. You may have to confess something to him 50 times in one day. It's okay, just re- confess it to him, receive his forgiveness, and, and repent. and Get back in the game and keep moving down the tracks of life. That's what keeps our relationship with Jesus tight. Jesus demonstrated his love on the cross to us. He bore the sins of the world and endured the wrath of Almighty God for us. But that's not all he did. Look what he did for us positionally. And has, again, this is simple past tense fact. And it's active voice, meaning Jesus is the one doing all the work here. And Jesus has made us. That's us, team. He has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Think about that. That's mind-boggling. And it's already done. That's where you get, well, yeah, but I don't look like or act like a king. Yeah, but it's already done. It's not like we're working towards that. No, what we're working towards is heaven as we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, allowing God to work in us and work through us. And he's made us kings and priests to his God and Father. And when you think on that, Worship should come out of your hearts. Wow, God, you've made me a king and a priest. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever, and ever and ever and ever, and and countless ages to follow, ever. Amen. This is all privilege. And with privilege, though, comes a certain responsibility as we're now God's ambassadors to his world that he created. See, Jesus was a king and a priest to his world. Team, now it's our time. The world today needs to see kings and priests of God. I mean, if, if the world today could understand that we were go- kings of the, you know, God's kids, the people would treat us differently, but they don't understand yet. So we must keep moving forward in this life, treating them in the world the way Jesus treated them. It's critical. You ever wondered why we sing songs about Jesus? We worship Jesus because of everything he's done for us, church. Plus, when we gather in Jesus' name, do you realize he's right here in our midst? He is. The Bible says he's right here. He he gathers with us. Now, let me ask you this. If Jesus was literally just showed up and we are worshiping, would you sing louder or quieter? Okay. The Bible says he's already here. So next week you're going to sing louder or quieter? I mean, he it says he inhabits the praises of his people. You need a new song in your heart to worship Jesus with all you got? Then kind of let this truth settle in here, settle in your heart. He made you a king and a priest to his God and Father. That's amazing. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, it's not that you can't be loud. No, because when you guys sing happy birthday to people out there, are you loud? Yeah, you're loud. Two weeks ago when we were out there, I couldn't even hear people speak to me. It was so loud. So it's not that we can't be loud or clapping. You clap for your favorite team or you clap for your favorite, you know, Uh, son or daughter hey you could clap for the one who's made you kings and priests and a God you could and you should as you recognize what he see when you recognize what God's done for you it causes you to live for him until you recognize you won't Because you're just kind of figuring it all out. That's why in the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters is everything God's done for you. And then in chapter four, verse one, Paul says, I beg you now to walk worthy of the calling in which you've been called. But you got to understand what he's done for you, which is that salvation. That should be enough to get you going. Listen to this Spurgeon quote about this verse right here. To recognize the glory of Jesus is come out and out for him. Some of you are, are... Not you, he's just writing this to somebody. Some of you are very like a mouse behind the wainscot. That would be behind the paneling. You're in the Lord's house, but you're not known as one of the family. Sometimes you give a little squeak in your hiding place and sometimes come out at night as the mouse does to pick up a crumb or two without being seen. Is this worthy of yourself? Is this worthy of your Lord and Master? It's kind of something to consider If you're trying to seek to save your life as we worship our Jesus. You know, well, yeah, but I don't sing it. Well, then go take a singing lesson. (laughs) God doesn't care. What he cares is that you worship him with your whole heart. You know, our worship as we realize what Jesus has done for us should explode within our hearts. When we understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you in the past and he's what he's doing right now in the present and yet he has a plan for you in the future explosion should take place you notice who's doing all the work here in these few verses who did the washing Jesus did who did the bleeding okay we're going to have to be a little more responsive who did the washing Jesus. who did the bleeding Jesus. who's in control of the situation Who's being faithful? It's all Him. It's all God stuff here. That's why this humbling thought ends with a good hearty Amen. You know, Amen is not the sign off to your prayers or or Amen and we close our Bibles at the end of the Bible study. You know, in Jesus' name, Amen. All done, all, all done God. You don't have to listen to me anymore. You can take me off the active praying list. You know, I'm No, that's not what it means. Amen is so be it, boom. God, make it happen, yes. Do it now. That's what the word amen means. So when the cults would try and deceive you by saying, look, amen, that means it's the end of a thought and we're going to a new thought. No, that's not true. That's an intellectual thinking. Amen means with some power. Yes, do it, God. And as John writes here under the direction and anointing of the Holy Ghost, this is the real deal. This is going to happen, amen? It's going to happen. Behold, verse 7. When you and I see the word behold, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to stop and we're supposed to consider and we're supposed to look at what's there. There's 29 of them in the book of Revelation. 29 times we're going to stop and consider something. So then we see behold, so we go, okay, what are we supposed to stop and look at and see that God wants us to understand? And it's in the imperative mood, so that means it's a command from God. So what is it that God really wants me to see here? Behold, he's coming. That's what God wants me to see. Behold, Jesus is coming. Is this new info in this book? No. Backtrack, please. Verse 1, 13th word things which must shortly take place. Verse 3, for the time is near. Now for the third time in seven verses. Behold, he's coming. (laughs) Man, does someone have a fascination with reminding the bride of Christ that Jesus is coming for her? Yeah, he does. Because he wants us to be alert and be ready. In Luke 22, he wants us to be praying that we be found worthy to escape the judgment that's coming. Could you imagine, let's say you're engaged, you're engaged to this person, and all of a sudden they just dropped off the planet. You saw them, and then the next day you don't see them, you go, "Huh, that's kind of weird. And then you call them, or her, no answer, text, no response. You go to work, not there. How long are you going to hold out for this person that just dropped off the planet? You can't track them down. A day? A week? A month? Six months. No, you're lying to yourself if you say six months. But if letters and text and emails and a host of other technology was, put, was to be put into play, you would wait for him or her, wouldn't you? Yeah, because you knew they were busy doing something else. Or how about FaceTime? Man, you could wait. Well, Jesus wants that same FaceTime with you, church, to encourage you with the fact that we're living in the last days and that he's coming so that we'd be alert, and we'd be watching and be ready. You see, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, when was the last time you stopped and considered that Jesus is coming back? I don't know. Only you can answer that. In Titus chapter 2, the grace that brings salvation salvation, teaches me to be looking for the return of Christ. And if you're saved, that means you're saved by grace through faith, that not of yourself. And so God's grace wants to be teaching you to be looking for the return of Christ. So when was that last time? I hope it was soon. You know, when was the last time you took a good examination of what you thought was important and you passed it through the filter of behold, he is coming. It's critical. If we were to continually consider that Jesus Christ is coming, I believe we would change how we live our lives. I believe if a believer was going out to sin and and all of a sudden he thought on, behold, Jesus is coming, that person might change their way. You know, the Bible says it could happen right now. There are people out there thinking they have all the time in the world, but Jesus says, behold, I'm coming with clouds. Se- Seen any clouds lately? They're out there. Now clouds are not only clouds. He's coming with the clouds, but he, or he's coming on the clouds, but he's also coming with clouds. Clouds are also people. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the, the cloud of witnesses is the Old Testament saints in chapter 11. And as we're looking around since last week, I hope we have been, Jesus says when you see these things begin to happen, look up for your redemption draws near. And as we've been looking around, discerning the signs of the times, they should point us to Jesus' coming back. 300 times in the Scriptures we're reminded of this major doctrine in the Bible. I mean, think about it, 300 times. Jesus, while on this earth, said this, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds. And the passage here says... Coming with the clouds, yeah, because he's going to be on them, and we're going to be coming with them. Because if you cheat and go to Revelation chapter nineteen, we're coming with them. We're the clouds, those who have raptured out here, those who were ready, and they went. And it says every eye will see him. It's not going to be done in secret. At his first coming, pretty low key. At his second coming, every eye will see him. No one will miss him in the entire world. That's still alive. And they will look on him whom they've pierced. It's going to happen. If you turn back to the second to the last Old Testament book in your Bible to Zechariah chapter 12, and in verse 10, this is how it reads. God says, I'll pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication then they will look on me whom they've pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Well, when did Israel pierce Almighty God? Yeah, 2,000 years ago, at the cross. And when he comes this second time, The Jews are going to realize that they missed his first coming and that they pierced him through and that thought's going to overwhelm them and no doubt the Jews will sorrow because they missed his first coming. But not just the Jews. Look what it says here. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Because everybody's going to see their part that they played in putting Jesus on the cross. Every single one of us played a part in it because of our sin. That's why Jesus went. Jesus says this in Matthew 24, 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Even so, amen. Make it happen. Be looking for it. Maranatha. We want to be ready and we want to be watching. Because it's going to go down. And we need to be alert. Don't get caught up in the things of this world. Yeah, there's things we have to do. But not at the expense of looking for the return of Christ. It's critical. He wants us to be awake. He wants us to be ready. You see, when we have a sharp, keen, understanding of the return of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden we care about people that are going to be left behind. We have a passion for the souls of people. See, God wants you and me to have a, have a, have a care and concern and passion for those who are lost. It also causes us to use the talents that God give, has given us for his kingdom and for his glory, and it causes us to invest his treasure in heaven. Where the Antichrist and the beast can't get to it. Because it's going to happen. And the way God has set it up, He set it up that every church age should be looking for the return of Christ. But you know what? Our age is way different. Because as we go through the book of Revelation, you know, it's like, wow, this whole earth is destroyed. Kind of hard to do that with swords and spears. Not today. We can blow this place up multiple times over. Russia can blow it up multiple times over. Israel's back in the land. There's so many things that are happening today in our lifetime that never happened in the previous years. Got to be awake. Got to be alert. And our hearts have got to be saying, come Lord Jesus. Father, we're thankful for all that you want to do in our lives. And Lord, we want to be found.